Amen. Hey, good morning, y'all. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me. My name is uh, Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that you're here this morning, and I know there's lots of places that you could be, um, but I think and I believe and I trust that the Lord has brought us here together, whether you're here physically or you're watching online or if it's Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon and you're and you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, I believe God has got us here for a reason in his sovereignty. He's got us together to hear his word, to talk about his word, to pray for each other, to lock arms together and, and, and be obedient to his word. So before we get started this morning, you know what, let me uh, pray as well. Lord, we, we love you today. We honor your name. We praise your name. Lord, we're so thankful that you have guarded and protected your word over the last two or three or four thousand years. We're so thankful that it is inerrant, it's infallible, and you, uh, it's the primary way that you communicate with us today. And so, Lord, as we talk through and walk through uh, different parts of your word today, Lord, we would ask you to, to illuminate the text, to, to allow us to understand it and just the way that you intended for us to understand it. And Lord, let, let, it, let it transform our lives. Let you transform our lives through your word. Lord, let our walk and our talk match. Let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be in a little holy huddle in here, Lord. Let us walk out during the week out of the doors of this church, out into a broken world, and be a city on a hill. Lord, let us want to walk into the darkness and bring light in there. And Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Hey, y'all, I got one thing that I want to share with you real quick that Nikki didn't talk about, and that is on the screen behind me. It's a little men's weekend that we're having, uh, Friday, September 30th, and then Saturday, October 1st. And it's funny, when I called Cameron to see if he would speak, I said, we're doing it on September 30th and 31st. And he texted me back and he said, um, my calendar doesn't have 31 days in September. I'm like, I'm sorry, bro. I'm sorry, bro. I didn't, you know, you got to do the little knuckle thing to figure out how many days. Anyway, but Cameron Arnett, who's a great guy, he's an actor. He was an overcomer. He's been in lots of Christian film. He's got incredible testimony. But he is going to be here and, and be a guest speaker we're going to do some stuff on our church property, which is right down Flat Rock Road. We're going to throw some knives, and we're going to throw some axes at some targets. And, you know, the last time we did that, my wife sh shamed us, all the men, in the axe throwing, but so she's not allowed to be there. Uh, but, but anyway, it's that weekend. You'll be able to register for this event uh, probably by Tuesday. You should be able to register for it. It's going to be a great time. Uh, Friday night and then Saturday up through noon, we're going to have some really good food Friday night and a really good breakfast on Sunday, and we're going to talk about the Word, and we're going to do some guy stuff. So make plans to attend that. Let me tell you all, a guy named George Mueller, George Mueller was a, uh, uh, one of the great men of faith in, in England, and he had an orphanage, and he ran this orphanage totally dependent on God. He lived his whole life. In, in really in total dependence on the Lord. And one time in his orphanage, the orphanage ran out of food. Well, Mueller goes into the dining kind of hall facility, 
area, and he went ahead and he set the table anyway. And he brings the kids in there, and the kids look around, and they're kind of looking at it because there's no food on the table, and they're looking at him like he's sort of crazy. And one of them spoke up and reminded uh, George Mueller that there wasn't any, fuel, any food. And Mueller answered that, that he realized that, but they needed to be thankful anyway. And so he prayed, and he, and he thanked the Lord for his promise to give them and to provide them with daily bread and, and to provide them with all of, of their needs. And he, and, he, and he prayed that. And he, he said, Lord, you know, he knows that he was busy doing his business, but in fact, these children were kind of hungry. When he finished praying, in fact, his prayer was kind of interrupted with a knock at the door. And when he opened the door, the a baker, who owned a guy who owned a bakery up the street, stood there and he said that he had really suddenly felt led to bring all the leftover, because they didn't sell all of the baked goods for the day, to bring all the leftovers down to the orphanage. And y'all, that doesn't sound like this huge big deal. But them hungry kids in that orphanage, it, it was a big deal. And it is really in those kind of times like that you, that you sort of know that God is real. It's when you have those kinds of experiences that you know that you know that he can be trusted. He wants for me and you to live our lives every single day in total dependence on him. In spite of the fact that stuff is pulling us all the time, just yanking at us and pulling us all over the place. So y'all, last week we started talking about prayer and we talk, started talking about living a God-dependent life. And, and if you're new around here or if you hadn't been here in a couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts. We typically preach and teach here verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we've been in Acts for about 13 or 14 months, really, walking verse by verse through the Scripture. But I said this last week that I got very convicted and very led that we would spend, that we would jump out of Acts, the book of Acts, and, and that we would talk about and walk through prayer that I just felt totally convicted and convinced that we needed to do that. And I said, if you remember, I said, I don't know if we'll be doing this for a week or two or three or four or six or ten. I don't know, but we're going to be obedient to what, the way that God leads us into this. And so last week we started talking about prayer. And, and we looked to the disciples' uh, example, and we were actually in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. And we looked to their example at the beginning, or in Acts uh, chapter 1, in the upper room. And if you remember, we had a ladder, and we looked, we pretended that the upper room was up there, and we took a peek in the window of that upper room. And it was right after Jesus had ascended to the Father. And we looked at what was going on in that upper room as a model for me and you today. What was going on in there, they gathered together, Jesus' guys, and, and in absolute unity. At the end of the day, there was 120 people up there. And they gathered in absolute unity, and they locked their arms together. They locked their hearts together, and they locked their minds together in prayer. The Bible tells us in Acts 1 that they were with one accord, that they were together, that they were in unity, and that they were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. They were in that room and they were devoting themselves to prayer. In fact, the title of last week's message was Common People in Constant Prayer. That's what was going on in, in that upper room. And that is the way that the church ought to look today. 
And I believe that most of us here are common people, and I believe that we ought to be in constant prayer. And so if you were not here last week, or if you did not come by the church this week, I hope that you got one of these when you came in. And if you didn't get one of these, don't be embarrassed to raise your hand. It just means you didn't get one of these. I want you to get your hand up, and I want to, uh, I assume we have some more, and I want to get one of these in your hand. It's a monthly prayer journal. It's nothing fancy, but it's, some, it's, a, it's a little prayer journal, and you can use it for the month, and I want, we're going to talk a little bit more about this down at the end, but I at least want to get one in your hands. So we're going to continue on today, and we're going to continue on talking about prayer. We're going to talk about constant prayer. In fact, we're going to talk about constant prayer and the will of God. That's the title of the message today, Constant Prayer and the Will of God. And we're going to primarily be in 1 Thessalonians, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We're going to primarily be in 1, we're going to be all over the place. There's another one over here too, please. Um, primarily in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verses 16, 17, and 18. And usually when people, when, when, if you can flip to that next slide. Usually when anybody talks about this passage, and it's a short little passage, they're focused on verse 17, praying nonstop. And that's a, pr pray continually. Well, that's a pretty pointed command to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing, don't ever stop. Well, that, that maybe is a, even a little bit of a shocking statement. As we sit here, raise your hand if you can say, I never stop praying. I pray without ceasing. I pray continually. I, without intermission, I pray. None of us can really say that. So it's a little bit of a shocking, almost sounds silly for, for Paul who wrote this letter. It almost sounds a little silly to even propose that we do that. Because doing anything without ceasing, it sounds like this tireless activity that this, this that, that requires lifelong endurance and lifelong commitment. It sounds like something, it sounds like a habit, if we're going to be commanded to do that, it sound, or commanded to do anything like that, it sounds like a habit that must be essential or critical to our very existence. Well, that is the case with prayer and a Christian. Martin Luther said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So y'all, if we look at the verses that are around verse 17, we'll see that it's probably a little less abrupt than it looks like superficially. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Those three little verses, they have really three separate commands, although they're interlocked, those commands. But they stress the importance of maintaining this habitual lifestyle of being dependent on God. It ought to be our lifestyle. And as, a, as an expression of that dependency on the Lord, prayer... Prayer is a fundamental aspect of fulfilling God's will for, for, for our lives, for, for my life and for your life. Now, look at that first command, verse 16. It says to rejoice always. Two little simple words, rejoice always. Rejoice. 
That word in the original language means to be glad or, or to, to delight in. We see it in Philippians chapter 4 in the key verse of the letter to the church at Philippi. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, again, I will say rejoice. Every time that word is used in Scripture, it is a command. It is in the form of a command. And what that means, what that means, what that tells us is that this inner gladness, this, this inner delight, this idea of rejoicing is a choice. Dude, you choose to be joyful. That's the way the language, that's the way the grammar is in Philippians and here in First Thessalonians. And I believe that the only way we can do that is if we under, really understand what, what it means to rejoice always. It means a number of things. First of all, it means to rejoice always, even in the trials. Y'all, even in the trials, and again, if you don't have a worship guide, I want you to get your hands up too so we can give you that you can fill in the blanks. But rejoice always, even in the trials. That, even, that idea, just y'all, just that idea runs totally contrary to the way our minds work. To, to, it runs contrary to everything about the way that we think. Our fallen nature has really trained us to believe that joy is the same thing as happiness and is dependent on our circumstances in the moment. If things are going good, then we believe that we're full of joy. But if our circumstances change, if our circumstances turn for the worse, we believe that we got a right to allow our joy to just dissolve into the slop of our suffering. But y'all, that ain't how it's supposed to be. That, that ain't how it should be. The command is to rejoice always. And it's a, it's a theme throughout Scripture. Rejoice always when our lives are intertwined with Christ, when we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, when we are born again. We were talking about new, being, uh, they were singing the song, New Wine. When we are a new creation, right? When we, are, when we have been saved, that Holy Spirit inside of us, he will help us to, to walk through adversity without sinking into paralyzing lows. But he will also allow us to manage prosperity, and I'm not talking about financial prosperity. I'm talking about he will allow us to manage uh, when things are kind of going our way, to manage that without us jumping into deceptive highs. So we don't ever, so the valleys can't be crazy low and the mountaintops can't be crazy high. He allows us, the Holy Spirit allows us, really he manages that in us. Jesus, excuse me, James, uh, Jesus' brother, he affirms this same truth in, in, uh, in, the, in the book of James, in chapter 1, starting in verse 2. He says, count it all joy. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you, you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. Your translation may, will produce endurance. But he doesn't, well, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't tell us to wait until the pain is over and then to rejoice. No, he says to rejoice when we encounter the junk. When. It's not an if, and it's not wait till all of that's over and rejoice. He says rejoice during the suffering. And y'all, I'm not saying that that's easy. I, I'm not, we face real stuff, you know, 
Five years ago, I had a doctor look me in the eye and say that the biopsy is positive. You got cancer. That's real stuff. You know, people get sick and people die and people lose jobs. And I'm not saying it's easy at all. Scripture doesn't say it's easy. But Scripture commands us to rejoice always. It's a choice. I think to count it all joy is to, to have a particular view, to have a particular, a friend of mine calls it God goggles, right? To look at life in a certain way, to have a particular mindset. I say we have a duty to pursue an attitude of joy in the middle of the trials. And that, that joy is not some fleeting emotion that rises up from the trial itself. It's not. But it is grounded in a peace that comes from knowing that God's will, and God's will is good and it's perfect, but knowing that His will is going to be carried out as a result of the hardship. And I'm not either saying that God caused me to have cancer. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying Romans 8.28 says that God stirs everything up in the pot for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, and good comes out of it somehow or the other. Sometimes we are privileged and honored enough to be able to see the fruit. Sometimes we're not privileged and honored to see the fruit. Maybe even more often than not, we don't see the fruit. But we are called to be obedient, and we're called to count it all joy. We're called to rejoice always over and over in Scripture. So James, in James chapter 1, like, he's not saying to me and you, no matter the pain, just put on a happy face. He's not saying that. He's not saying pretend if you have to. Not saying that. He, you know, he's not saying whatever you do, don't let anybody know that you're hurting. He's not saying to live in denial. He's not saying anything like that. Trials are hard and and trials are real, and sometimes they seem totally unbearable. Raise your hand if you've ever walked through something, and it could have been three days, or it could have been three months or three years, that felt unbearable. All of us have had those feelings. We all, Scripture would say, rejoice always, because the Lord is our strength. And because He's our strength, we can rejoice always, because that's His will for me and you. So rejoice even in the trials. And then rejoice always in the Lord. Again, y'all, the foundation of Christian joy is not whatever circumstance we find ourselves in because they're fleeting. The circumstances are bound by time. Again, Philippians chapter 4, which I quoted you verse 4 of chapter 4 a minute ago. Rejoice in the Lord always. True, authentic, real, genuine Joy is found in the Lord. If our hearts are going to be full of joy, then our, then our hearts have got to be laser-focused on the Lord. James, uh, when he was talking between two songs, he was talking about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. If our hearts are going to be full of joy, we've got to be laser-focused on the Lord. But the reverse of that is true as well. If the eyes of our faith, y'all hear this, if the eyes of our faith are focused on our troubles, joy will be ripped out of our hands. Did y'all catch that? If our eyes are focused on the troubles, 
Joy is just going to be stolen away from us. I call that the Eeyore principle. Who remembers Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Is it not? She rolled her eyes at me. It is the Eeyore principle, y'all. Psalm 16. It's a beautiful psalm. David starts Psalm 16 off with a prayer, and he ends Psalm 16 with a prayer. And in verse 8, he says this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You might as well put, insert in there, I have chosen to set the Lord before me. I have chosen for my eyes to be focused on him. He's always in front of me. And he doesn't write, my troubles are always before me. No, that's what Eeyore writes. Eeyore writes that my troubles are always before me. It is the Lord that is constantly in David's mind's eye. And he didn't dwell on all of the what-ifs. Y'all, if you have lived your life dwelling on the what-ifs, let that stop today. You don't need to dwell on the what-ifs. You do not need to dwell. Put the Lord in front of your mind. Do what David did. I have set the Lord always before me. He made a conscious choice to do that, to place the Lord in front of him, to place the, the Lord's protection in front of him. The Lord's faithfulness in front of him. The Lord's sufficiency in front of his face continually. He chose that. Verse 8 says that. As a model for me and you today, David's laser focus was a chosen habit. And that habit, it took root in the fertile soil of communicating with the Lord in prayer. That habit grew out of a life, a God-dependent life of prayer. David had this posture of God dependency and that posture of God dependency fueled his joy. Look what verse 9 says. He's, it says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He said, I put the Lord before me and therefore my heart is glad and I rejoice. You just can't get away from the connection between God dependent prayer and having a posture of joy. They are totally intertwined together. Verse 16. Now the second command in this main passage in 1 Thessalonians in verse 17, it does say pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That, that word there means, that word ceasing in, in, the, in the original language, it means uh, permanent or continual or without, uh, without intermission or without interruption. It is almost like this nagging, constant action that goes on and on and on and on. And again, it's a command. It's in the form of a command. So if praying is, it, it, without ceasing is a command from the Apostle Paul, we can be certain that it remains the will of God that you and I stay committed to prayer. And we stay committed to prayer as this essential discipline in our life. The very next verse says that it's God's will for us. If you think about it, y'all, God commune primarily, way primarily, God communicates with me and you primarily through the text of his word. Now, there's other ways that he communicates, but primarily today he communicates through his word. But you and I, the only way that we can communicate with him is only by means of prayer. So clearly it is God's will for us to express our dependence on him 
through constant communicating with him through prayer. Samuel, Old Testament prophet. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Israel's whining. They want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Give us a king. Give us a king. And first, well, in 1 Samuel 12, uh, Samuel recognizes prayer as a part of the will of God. And Israel recognizes the sinfulness of their demanding a human king over the Lord's kingship. So they beg Samuel to intercede for them. Samuel tells them to return to God, but he also understood his own personal responsibility to continue to pray for them. Look at verse 23. It says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. So even though these people were rebellious, Israel, constantly rebellious, Samuel refused to neglect praying for them. He wouldn't give up on them. Even though they step outside of God's will, he was determined not to do the very same thing. And there's a truth in this passage in 1 Samuel that I think we got to recognize. Samuel, I never saw this until last week. Samuel called his prayerlessness sin. Now that's a powerful statement. Sin. And I'm sure that all of us feel bad when when our prayer life becomes stagnant or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's nearly non-existent and we may kind of feel bad of it, but how many of us call our lack of prayer sin? I told you last week, I kind of told you at the beginning of the day, that I believe the Holy Spirit was as leading us into this season of prayer and talking about and thinking about prayer and that I believed that it was the deficiencies in my own personal prayer life that was kind of, uh, kind of that he kind of used in that. The Lord sort of affirmed that through other people in our church today because they mentioned different things to me. Somebody in our church told me uh, after worship, after our service last week, that they had gotten a text message from their mom and their her mom's church had just started this, this prayer series and, and this season and being led into prayer. Had somebody else in our church family that emailed me on Tuesday, I think, and she said this, and I'm going to quote her. She said, the Holy Spirit must be on the move because I have had many nudges to invigorate my prayer life, and your sermon series confirms the nudges. We need to be in prayer. Samuel's talking about prayer. And so with him as the mind, he talks about prayerlessness being sin and so as him being this kind of model I'm going to tell you right now and I didn't really say this last week but I'm going to say it today that I confess to you and I confess to the Lord the, um, the sin my own sin of of prayerlessness and I repent of that sin and I'm asking you to hold me accountable to this renewed commitment of a lifestyle of God dependent prayer scripture tells us prayerlessness is a sin and I believe it is the a self-sufficient kind of attitude that leads to it. It's a I can do everything myself kind of attitude. Because you can't have that I can do everything myself kind of attitude and have God and, and be dependent on God for everything. Those two things, they, they make no sense. A.W. Pink, 
writer, he wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God. It's a fantastic book. He said this. He said, prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude, an attitude of dependency, dependency upon God. Because prayer is an attitude of dependency, the one who really prays is submissive to God's will. And submission to the divine will, submission to God's will, means that we are content for the Lord to supply our need according to his own sovereign dictates. That means if I'm dependent on him, I'm submitting everything that I am to his kingship and to his will. And I'm, I'm dethroning myself and I'm putting him back in his rightful place on the throne. And it's about his will. Y'all, it's not about my will. It's not about your will. I want us to think about two aspects of God's will as they relate to, to, to the need to live lives in, in constant prayer. Constant prayer, it protects us from temptation. Have you ever noticed that? If you, if you feel this temptation of whatever it is, whatever the sin of the day is, whatever, whatever the devil uses to tempt you, if you just start praying, if you pick up the scripture and you just start reading and you start praying, it is a major defense against temptation. Mark chapter 14, Jesus has gone into the garden to pray. It's the night before he's crucified, and he asked some of his guys to sit and watch, to sit and take a watch. And in verse 37 of Mark 14, it says, And he came, he, Jesus, came and found him sleeping. And he said to Peter, like, are you really asleep? Could you not even stay awake and watch for an hour? And he says in verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he's teaching us a principle that a lack of diligence in prayer puts us in a vulnerable position. It, a lack of diligence in prayer makes us susceptible to temptation. He called his disciples then. He calls me and you today to be in constant prayer so that verse 38 says that we may not enter into temptation. Living a lifestyle of, of God-dependent prayer it guards our hearts from the temptation. Keeps us from just laying around virtually asleep and vulnerable to sin's deceptive appeal. And then constant prayer keeps us alert to attacks from the evil one. You know, in addition to this passage we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls believers into constant prayer also in his letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. He says here that we are to pray at all times with, quote, with this in view. With what in view? The eight verses before, jot it down. I don't know if I put it in your worship guide. You know, jot down Ephesians 6 starting in verse 10. But in, in those eight verses, seven or eight verses uh, starting in verse 10, he's talking about spiritual warfare. And so it's the devil and his little dirt bags attacks that are in view. Keep the, the spiritual warfare in view. Prayer is, y'all, prayer is like having this, this, this battlefield hotline for spiritual warfare. 
One of the reasons that it seems like it is malfunctioning in the hands of so many Christian soldiers today is because a lot of Christian soldiers have kind of gone AWOL. And the Lord has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. The Lord has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. John Piper said God's pleasure in the prayers of his people is directly proportional to his passion for world evangelism. That means he takes so much pleasure, the Lord does, in our prayers because our prayers are so tied to evangelism. He says, Piper goes on, he says, we are on this earth to press back the forces of darkness and we're given access to headquarters by prayer in order to advance this cause, the cause of sharing the gospel, the cause of evangelizing the world. As you sit here today, are you convinced that the church has been called to be soldiers on the battlefield of the world? Are you living today like you got a wartime hotline to heaven? Because you do. If you're a Christ follower, you do. I believe that each of us, our understanding of the reality of spiritual warfare, and if you've ever personally encountered spiritual warfare, you know it's real. If you've ever seen it in a family member or ever lived it out in your house. So I think the reality of that It plays a huge role in whether or not we will develop the habit of God-dependent prayer. It's funny because I can hear people pray, and and sometimes you hear somebody pray, and you're like, man, I want to be like them when I grow up. Like their prayers are just so awesome. And you can almost take it to the bank that they have lived through some hellacious spiritual warfare because it will put you on your knees in total dependence on God. So staying in the will of God by living a life of prayer, it it guards us from temptation and it guards us against the devil's attacks. Now the third command in this little passage in verse 18 tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. And you know, it's so much more natural for me and you to whine and to complain and to be ungrateful. we got to be told to be thankful because we're really just not necessarily really thankful people. We really want to receive stuff, but then we're a little slow to give thanks. And we may even pray that God would jump into a situation in our lives and fix it, but then almost immediately we pat our, back, our own backs uh, for the fix. There's a guy named George Matheson. He's a Scottish pastor, Scottish hymn writer. He was blind at the age of 18. And he prayed this prayer. He said, my God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. I have thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I've been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. He cries out to the Lord and says, teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to you by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have created my rainbow, thankful, grateful prayer. It often serves to remind us of all kind of stuff. It reminds us, first and foremost, I think, that God alone is the provider. 
thankful, grateful prayer reminds us that God is the provider. As, as Israel, the people of Israel have been in slavery for 400 or so years, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses reminds them uh, to be thankful in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10 says, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Jesus himself modeled this thankfulness, this gratefulness in John chapter 6. It's the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 men and their families, which probably was 10,000 people. And Jesus grabs a piece of bread out of the basket. And verse 11 says, when he took the loaves, he then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Jesus himself, he gives thanks for the bread. The Father provided. Thankful prayer is the evidence itself that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, we see that we are not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead we're to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's to be willingly controlled by Him by submitting to the Word of God that He inspired. And when we do that, when that's true, verse 19 says we'll address each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. And finally, in verse 20, concludingly kind of, we give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an evidence that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Thankful prayer fights anxiety, fights worry, and ushers in peace. Thankfulness, it's a way of thinking. It's a mindset. It's it's a lens that we put on and we view life through. It's an attitude, and it's a choice. And I think because of that, it's an antidote for, for anxiety. It's a medicine for worry. It's an elixir for worry. Philippians chapter 4, I talked about the key verse a little while ago, rejoice always. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. Does that mean be anxious about some things? No, it says be anxious about nothing. Nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the promise is here. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why do you think the Holy Spirit through Paul added the words in verse 6, with thanksgiving? Here's why. Because it's impossible for an anxious spirit to coexist with a thankful spirit. It's like impossible for a a worrisome spirit to coexist with a grateful spirit. Thankful prayer calls on this security guard called peace to stand post, to stand watch at the post of your hearts, forcing out worry and forcing out anxiety and forbidding it to come back. Because when there's peace is there, anxiety and worry, they can't get in. Because that peace is guarding your heart. Thankfulness is the right attitude of prayer. Look at Colossians chapter 4 verse 2. It encourages us to devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. It's an attitude. And lastly, thankful prayer reminds us that Jesus alone qualifies us as God's children. Paul prayed all the time for for the spiritual growth of the believers that he shepherded. In Colossians 1.12, at the end of his 
list of spiritual qualities he asked the Lord to produce in, in the hearts of the Colossians is that they would give, look at verse 12, that they would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When we pray, when you and I pray, don't you ever forget that the only reason that God hears your prayer is because Jesus Christ paved the way for him to hear the prayer. That made it possible. We are qualified. The Father qualifies us through the Son. It's because of Jesus' righteousness that we are, that we, that we are allowed to be in prayer, to be in communication with the Lord. Again, the, the Father qualifies us through the Son. I want you to hear this, y'all, and hear it clearly. And al although that we are, we are sinners by nature, we're sinners by our thoughts, we're sinners by, by our deeds, although all of that, God graciously receives us through faith and trust in the sacrificial death and the resurrection of His Son. Thankfulness, gratefulness, it protects us from, from the prideful thought that we even have one inkling of virtue in and of ourselves that somehow obligates God to hear us. Because we don't. We don't. You and I can come to, to God's throne in grace. We can come to his throne in prayer only because of Christ and Christ alone. When did the veil tear? If you go back and read the Gospels. He breathed his last. The temple veil tore. What was behind that veil, that curtain, that drapery? The Holy of Holies. The very presence of the Lord. And one time a year, the high priest got to go in there with a rope tied around his ankle so if he croaked while he was in there, they could pull his dead body out because nobody could go in there. The son sacrificed and died on the cross and the veil tore and me and you praise the Lord we get to go in there ourselves a dirty filthy sinner I get to go in there and I ain't got to go through the high priest I got the highest of priests that took care of making it available for me what could be better than that I get to communicate anytime I want with the creator of the universe like that is the coolest thing ever so y'all, it's, and it's because Christ and Christ alone that I'm qualified to do that. Living this life of prayer, it is absolutely God's will for every single Jesus follower. But I want you to remember that these commands in 1 Thessalonians are given to this community of believers in Thessalonica to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to be thankful. It was delivered to a community there in Thessalonica. So as important as it is for us, and I stress this today here, the value of constant prayer in the life of each of us, each individual believers in my life and in your life, it is just as significant for us to cultivate the same spirit of God dependency in local churches all over the planet. So as, as sure as I'm talking to each one of us individually, myself included, I'm just as much talking about talking to us collectively as church on the trail because there's no doubt that God's will, God's desire, God's heart, it includes a desire for churches to express their reliance on him collectively 
through fostering prayer as a discipline in the life of the church, as a discipline in the functioning of the body of Christ. I want to give you one takeaway, maybe a a big point in one thought or something. As believers, we should pray together in here. We absolutely should. Locking arms together, we should pray together in here. This should be our upper room, right? We should also spend time alone with the Lord in prayer, individually alone in prayer. We should also pray throughout the day as the desire to rejoice or the need for help kind of shows up, y'all. Life ebbs and flows, and there are going to be times that you rejoice, and there are going to be times that that you have need and, and you need help. We should be in prayer all of those times because the end of 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's his will for me and you. And y'all, I want to be in his will. I want all of us to be in his will individually and as, and as a local assembly. I want every church in Columbus, in Georgia, in the, in the country and in the world to be inside of God's will, and it has got to start with locking arms together in prayer. It has to. You know, I mentioned a minute ago that you got this. Please commit to praying. This is, it'll, it'll help you get your thoughts in order. And please, and this is being redundant, y'all, but when somebody says, would you pray for me? And you say yes. Don't not pray for them because that makes you a liar. Don't be a liar. Pray for them. The only way for me personally to do it is I got to write it down. And I got to pray for them right then and there, whether we're on the phone or whether we're standing right next to each other. If that joker asked me to pray for him, I'm ripping your hands off the keys and we're going to pray right now. And then I'm going to write it down because I know myself well enough to know that I'll forget. I, w- I love him. I love James, but I know myself well enough that I'll forget. i got to write it down. And you also, when I ask you to pray for me and my family, I'm for real when I say that. Pray for them. It's what we got to do. We started last Sunday night at 6 o'clock from 6 to 7, and some of you know this. Some of you, if you weren't here last week, you don't know this, but from 6 to 7 on every Sunday night, from now till whenever the Lord kind of says to not do it, this room will be a room of prayer. We're praying in here together. And I, again, I'm not asking you to be here every Sunday night. I'm not asking you to be here three out of four, two out of four, one out of four. I'm asking you to pray. I'd love for everybody to be here. Pray. This room will be a room of prayer. And it ain't going to be a big production. It's not going to be any kind of production at all. People come up, came up and they prayed at the cross. Somebody stuck a little note there. People sat there and just read their Bible and prayed. Some people were journaling. There's not going to be live music. There's a little music playing in the background. We're just praying together. It doesn't need to be a big production. We just need to be praying. So every Sunday from 6 to 7, I invite you to be here. But more than anything, I invite you to pray. And I invite you to pray for each other. Y'all, all those passages about trials and stuff happening in our lives and you know Romans eight twenty eight that God takes everything in our lives for those that love him and are called according to his purpose and he stirs it up and he and something good comes out of that 
Don't forget it says, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a promise. It's a promise. When James calls you brothers and sisters, he's talking to believers. When Paul says the saints, he's talking to believers. These promises are to believers. The promise is not that, those promises are not to unbelievers. They're to believers. And so if you're not a, a Christian today, I just ask you to consider the offer. Just consider the offer. And here's the offer. We talked about it a little bit, and I want to put it out there black and white. Y'all, the, the deal is we're sinners, and our sin is going to get paid for, and we can choose to pay for it ourselves. Not a smart choice, but we can choose to pay for it ourselves. And the wages of sin, what are the wages of sin? Death. And I can do that. I can choose that. And eternity in hell. I mean, I, but I can choose that. Or I can allow the death on a cross outside of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago. I can allow that blood that was spilt there to handle my sin. And y'all, if I said that makes all kind of sense, I, it doesn't make all kind of sense because I'm the one that deserves it. So I can't tell you that it makes all kind of sense, but I can tell you it's true. And I can tell you that it happened. And I can tell you that he really died on a cross. And I can tell you that he really went into a, a tomb, a cave, dead as a doornail. And I can tell you that he came out alive. And he, when he came out alive, it made that eternal life possible for me and you. And I can't say, again, that it makes all the logical, rational sense in the world, but I can tell you that it's true. And if it's true, it changes everything. There was a line in one of the songs y'all sung that it changes everything. And those are the God goggles that I put on 22 years ago. And I'm good looking through those God goggles. I'm thankful that I'm looking through those God goggles. So y'all, if you've never considered that, please consider it today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that the veil tore, that that did give us access and that we can be in straight communication without somebody, some priest to confess to or some priest to have to talk to to get to you. Lord, we're thankful for that. And Lord, we're thankful that you took care of a sin problem that was, that was mine to take care of and you took care of it Lord I'm, I'm just thankful for that so anybody that is here today if, if that is where you are you think this in your mind you say it out loud or you say it to yourself Lord I repent of my sin I turn away from it and I turn towards you and I believe that you died on the cross and I believe that death took care of the debt that was mine and Lord I believe you went in a grave dead and came out alive and I'm going to cry out to you right now Lord save me And Lord, we ask that and we thank you in the name of Jesus, amen. Y'all, if, if you need prayer, if you are just thinking about that offer and just want to talk, please find me. I would love to talk to you about it. If you did just make a decision and said, I want that, I want that, please get with somebody. There's people back in our little prayer corner back there. They'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you. 
you have any prayer concerns, write them down on a little connection card in the seat back in front of you. You can turn it in at the welcome desk. Thank you all.